the beginning was the word, and the word with, was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 3rd. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. John 20. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus, then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 21. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. May the Lord bless this reading to our understanding. Amen. Amen. Thank you. In 1955, two men from the United States took a two-week hike to get to a small village in the mountains of the Philippines. And they told the officials that they had come to study the language of the people, the Isnag people, and to do Bible translation work, and where should they stay? 
And the officials told them, well, go a little farther to the village of Debagat, and you can stay there. And that's what the two men did. And they set up shop, and they studied the Isnag language. About a year later, another person, maybe two, joined them. And in 1961, the Gospel of Mark, just the Gospel of Mark, was translated for the first time into the Isnag language, and a copy was given to a little boy named Nard Pugial. And through reading that account of the life of Jesus Christ in Mark, Nard gave his life to Christ and became a Christian. In 1971, that hike took place in 1955. In 1971, Rudy Barlin, a Filipino native, came to help finish the translation of the entire New Testament. And that was finally completed in 1979. And Rudy, who has been here, who many of you know and remember and have met, was the first Filipino Bible translator to help finish a New Testament in all the Philippines. Now that little boy named Nard, who had gotten that Gospel of Mark and given his life to Christ, became a pilot, and he was the first one to fly 500 copies of the Isnag Bible, as it stood at that time, the New Testament, to the small village of Debagat in 1982, bringing part of the Word of God to his own people. And they presented our church with a copy of that. I've shown it to you before. It also has Genesis and Exodus in it. We got this about 10 years ago. I keep this um, displayed in my study. I look at it every day because it reminds me of the value of the Word of God and the work that goes into it. I'm going to pass it around. Pass it around the sanctuary so when I'm preaching you can see what they had to that time, the Isnag Bible. This week... Uh, we received an email. I got two emails, one from Rudy Barlin, one from Nard Pugiao, that the translation of the Old Testament in the Isnag language was just completed this week. Just this week. They're thrilled. And uh, can you imagine not being able to read God's story in your own language until now? And you thought your reading of the Old Testament was eye-opening, Imagine the stories and the discoveries and the things that that those people are going to find as they read. Now they have some revisions to do. They have a final check they've got to go through and then they're going to publish the first Isnag Bible for the very first time. And they want to print 10,000 at least, 10,000 Isnag Bibles to give to people and that can be done for $10 each. See me or email me if you want to be a part of that and help with that. I'll tell you how you can. Um, but I am very proud that our church has been supporting Rudy and Nard and now Nard's son, Mark Pugiao, in Bible translation there for many, many years. That Bible is going to go into their hands and you help do it, MOPC. And that's why I share it with you this morning. You are putting the Word of God in people's hands who have never been able to read it before. There are people groups in this world that still do not have the Bible, God's story, in their own language. You know, once upon a time, someone translated the Bible into English. Think about it. And scholars continue to do work, painstaking, detailed, persevering work And let's be grateful as they try to put the Bible in our language, in clear language, 
uh, so that we can read and hear and know what God has said and what God has done. Don't take the word for granted. Don't take our Bibles for granted. John is the fourth gospel. In 2012, you'll remember we, walked, we spent the whole year on the gospel of John. I know, it was painful, wasn't it? The whole year. What a rich spiritual track that was as we just focused on John and his, his picture of Jesus. Because John gives us a totally different take on Jesus than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Mark, which actually was the first gospel written, begins with Jesus' baptism. That's where he begins, his story of Jesus. Matthew begins with the lineage of Jesus and then his birth. Luke begins his story of Jesus with the birth of Jesus in a, in a much more extended way. But John begins his gospel way before any of that. He begins in eternity, before time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, knowing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created, helps us appreciate what John is writing and trying to tell us. The Word is one of many titles that John gives to Jesus in his Gospels. Why call Jesus the Word? Because in Jesus, God speaks specifically and specially to us. Matthew Henry put it this way, The Word has made known God's mind to us as a man's word or speech makes known his thoughts. Jesus is God's talk. He has explained who God is and what he is like. And the most effective way that God believed he could express himself was by coming in the flesh. Not coming as an idea. Not coming as a philosophy. Not coming as a religion. But coming as a person. He didn't make us climb some kind of spiritual ladder to get to him. God didn't give us some path of spiritual enlightenment in order to begin to catch a glimpse of him. No, God descended down to us in human form. There's always been a lot of talk about the Gospel of John. Some people think it was actually the first one written. Most people think it was the last one written. But why is John so different? Why does John see things and know things that the other three don't seem to know, the other Gospel writers? The only thing that John has in common with Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the account of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. A lot of mystery surrounding John. Many consider John the most spiritual of the Gospels. Um, the early church, the early Christians, gave each of the Gospels a symbol for their unique portrayals of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of John came to be symbolized by an eagle because the early church believed an eagle could look straight into the sun and not be blinded. John allows us to look straight into the glory of the Son of God. He penetrates the mystery and the eternal truths and the mind of God. And the Word became flesh. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. St. Augustine, writing 1,700 years ago about the Gospel of John, said it was appropriate to compare John to an eagle, he said, because John has so much spiritual insight in his Gospel. And Augustine said, while the other Gospel writers gave us a good picture of Jesus on earth, 
Augustine said, John soared not only above the earth, but above air and sky, even above the whole army of the angels and the whole order of invisible powers, and he reached Christ. John gives us a very transcendent view of Jesus. The gospel begins with that prologue, which is poetic and picturesque, telling us how the Word became flesh. Dale Bruner commented that, commented that this flesh-born revelation is the great thrill of those opening verses of the prologue. The fact that the invisible God came down in and into the human life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and explained Himself in the clearest and most incredible way is itself gospel. Very good news. John is very symbolic. He records seven different signs, wonders that Jesus does. The first is the changing of water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And, and then there's six others. And he doesn't give, them, give these to us to show, oh, Jesus can do cool stuff. The signs show Jesus' glory and are to stir belief in him. And then John gives us seven I am statements of Jesus. For example, we hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And then there are others. At one point, Jesus even says, before Abraham was, and you've read the big story, you know how far back Abraham goes. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Calling himself God. The Lord, who when Moses asked, who should I tell the Hebrews is sending me to them to lead them out of Egypt? God said, tell them, I am sent you. Seven signs, seven I am statements. Seven in the Bible is a number for perfection. If you have seven in the Bible, you have it all. John, of course, tells us of God's love for the world that was so great that he gave his only son and sent his son into the world. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why the son came. John is a very physical and fleshy gospel. This is because he writes against the heresy of his day, which was known as Gnosticism. That's how you spell it. That's why I put it up there. Gnosticism believed this, that all matter, that everything physical was bad, and only what was spirit was good. I mean, imagine that. And because matter is bad, Gnostics said God could not have come into contact with this created world. In fact, God didn't create this world at all. Gnostics believed Jesus wasn't really divine. Some believed he had no real body. He only had a spiritual body. And so when John says, and the Word became flesh, and when John says, all things were created through him, and when John shows Jesus' glory breaking into these fleshly things like weddings and funerals and feeding hungry people and making fish for his disciples. John is trying to set people straight about the Lord against the beliefs of Gnosticism. Jesus, though fully God, was full of matter and full of flesh. John gives several lengthy conversations in his gospel between Jesus and other people. And these are significant conversations full of spiritual truth. For example, there's the meeting that Josh read for us, the meeting at night by stealth of Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus, 
where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again for him to be in and to see the kingdom of God. There's that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well where Jesus tells her that she can have living water that he offers if she would only ask for it. And then there's that conversation and that long ordeal between Jesus and the man born blind whom Jesus heals. Now, in these conversations, there's this double layer of meaning going on. Jesus uses an image, and people take it literally, not catching that Jesus is speaking spiritually. For example... Nicodemus hears he must be born again, and he can't figure out for the life of him how he's supposed to go back in his mother's womb and be born. But Jesus is speaking of being born from above, being born of God, a spiritual rebirth. The woman at the well, she's thinking real water, but Jesus is speaking about having him live inside of her through the Holy Spirit. He's speaking again on a deep spiritual level. Jesus accuses the Jewish leaders who have a persecuted him for healing this blind man on the Sabbath. Jesus says, you're all blind. Well, they can see physically. They're not blind, but he's speaking spiritually about their spiritual blindness. And John, the writer John, the Apostle John, he has an amazing knack for details. He tells us how many jars were at the wedding in Cana, like we care. He tells us that the loaves at the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, folks, those were barley loaves, John tells us. And he tells us that there were four soldiers gambling for Jesus' robe. And he tells us how Jesus wrote in in the sand with his finger. And he talks about how it was 153 fish that were caught when the disciples hauled in the fish with that net. Exact times when something happens. Precise amounts Details of geography are throughout John, and with no apparent significance. They don't mean anything other than it's someone with a sharp memory and someone with excellent insight, inside information, maybe, into what Jesus was doing and where he went and what he said. Other things that are unique to John, you don't find them in the other Gospels. Long speeches by Jesus about who he is and the Jewish establishment's rejection of him. After the feeding of the 5,000, you find one of these where Jesus goes on a long speech about him being the bread of life. John is the only gospel to give us the woman caught in adultery and the way Jesus treats her with truth and with grace. Jesus' good shepherd sermon is in John where Jesus shows he's different than all the other shepherds because he's the shepherd who lays down his life. And boy, isn't it true? That is the very center of who Christ is. Unless the cross is there, it is not Christianity. The raising of Lazarus, you get that in John's gospel, which not only shows Jesus' ability to give life, but it also motivated a plot to kill Jesus. Yes, Jesus raised a friend who was dead, but he had to pay for it with his own life. The upper room talk, chapters 13 through 16, we sometimes call it the upper room talk, Uh, talk or the chat, an intimate time where Jesus begins by washing his disciples' feet. He gives them a new commandment, I, to, to love others as he has loved us. He talks about how he is the vine, we are the branches. He tells them at that time that he's going to go away, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit to continue his ministry Um, and he calls the Spirit your comforter, your counselor, your advocate, your helper. We get some great teaching on the Holy Spirit in John. 
in this long time of Jesus' teaching, he warns his disciples of the trouble that they're going to have in the world when he leaves because they're his disciples. We, we get Jesus' long prayer for oneness amongst all his followers. And interestingly, John doesn't give any parables to us of Jesus. There are no parables of Jesus in John. It's a unique gospel. But John makes no secret about why he's writing it. For he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. They're not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. The whole point of John is for us to believe in Jesus as the one and only Son of God. Believing is the main theme of John. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? When John says someone believed, when John says believe in his gospel, he always uses an idiom of his language that literally means believe into him, believe into Jesus. Now, we don't say someone believes into someone, but John uses this idiom almost every time he mentions belief in his gospel, and he does that a lot. I like the thought, and I like the picture of believing into Jesus. When we believe into Jesus, we have to touch the Lord. We have to make contact with Him. We have to put the full weight of our trust in Him. Do we not? I want to demonstrate this just with a very simple demonstration the way I picture it. Sammy, since I complimented you, will you come up here and help me now in this sermon? You don't have to say anything. Don't worry. Just come on up here. It's very easy. Okay. Just turn around. Turn your back to me. I just want you to fall backwards, and I'm going to catch you. I want you to believe that I'm going to hold you up. And then just stay there, okay? Are you ready? Go ahead. Now, just stay there. Is she believing into me? Is, she tr- is her full weight on me? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. That's what we do with Jesus. You've got to make contact. We put the full weight of ourselves into him. Believe always appears in John as a verb, never as a noun. And the word faith, which is very close to the word believe in the New Testament, which is a noun, never appears in John. It is always believe and it's always a verb because believe is an action word in John. It's something you've got to do. And we believe into Jesus, I think, every day if we're walking with him. We believe into Jesus in our struggles. We believe into Jesus in our relationships. We believe into Jesus in our jobs. We believe into Jesus for our healing. We believe into Jesus for our transitions, for all the uncertainties, for the good things. We believe into Jesus in life and in death and everything that's going to come in between. And we put our full weight in Him. Believing links us to the object of our believing, like an anchor secures a ship to the ocean floor. Our believing links us to God. We just don't intellectually think He exists. That's not believing that John is talking about. 
We anchor ourselves to God and we rest secure in that. And in John, every time he uses the word believe, there's never an adjective or an adverb to spruce it up. John never says, or Jesus never says, you must strongly believe. He never says, you must really believe. He must says, now you've got to deeply believe. You believe, and that's it. There's nothing more you can do. Because if we have to really believe, or we have to deeply believe, then you know what? Belief becomes a work, doesn't it? We have to add our effort to it. And John takes that right out of our hands. Because believing is receiving what Jesus does and being good with it. And that's it. You know, some days my believing is better than other days, I find. And thank God our believing doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be strong, doesn't come without times of question. John tells us Jesus did it all, believing receives it all. You just believe. And John gives us that story of Thomas to help us with that. You know, doubting Thomas. And Thomas had not been with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them previously after his resurrection. And Thomas said, you know what, unless I see him, unless I can touch his physically resurrected fleshly body, I'm not going to believe. And so again, Thomas, this time he's with the disciples that are in a room and Jesus comes and he appears. And Jesus says, Thomas, come here. Put it right there. Here it is. Put it right there. Thomas, there they are. Touch them. Those are my nail-scarred hands. And what does Thomas say? He says, my Lord, my God. And then Jesus says, Thomas, blessed are you. Because you've seen me, you've believed. That's good. But blessed are those who have not seen. And yet they believe. You know, the early church father, Gregory, years, centuries ago, he said that, I love this. He said, the unbelief of Thomas, the unbelief of Thomas is more profitable to our faith than the belief of the disciples. Because Thomas asks the question we all need to have answered, that we all want to ask, and there is an answer for it. We need to know, has Jesus really, bodily, historically, been raised from the dead, and he's not just an ecstatic vision or some deep desire that his disciples made up? Again, Dale Bruner reminds us that through Thomas, our own questioning is raised, it's addressed. Our wondering is honored, and John takes our wonderings seriously. Jesus doesn't reject Thomas, but honors his skepticism and questioning, and he does the same with ours. He says, you you bring that to me. John writes everything so that we will come to belief and keep on believing in Jesus. Keep on doing it. And blessed are those who have not seen, yet still believe that God has come in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who believe He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the incarnate Word of God. Blessed are those who know that He gives new birth and believe in Him for living water and believe that He allows us to see spiritual things and that He sends His Holy Spirit to comfort us and guide us. And when we come to the table, the bread and the cup, with belief in Jesus as the Son of God, and that 
It is through His life that we come to the Father. When we come with that, the Holy Spirit, in some profound, mysterious, spiritual way, makes this the life of Christ for us. In John's Gospel, we hear Jesus say, if you eat, drink, take you into me, I abide in you. You will abide in me. So come, all you who believe into Jesus, in whatever shape that belief may be, as long as you believe that Jesus is Lord, that He is our way to the Father and the only way to the Father, Jesus invites you to this table to meet us here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for welcoming us to this table. We know that we do not come because we are worthy or because of anything we have done, but because Jesus Christ has redeemed us and made us worthy through the life of Christ. We thank you for his cross, his resurrection, and for his kingdom that is coming. Heavenly Father, renew our belief in your Son as we feed on this bread and this cup. Holy Spirit, give us new confidence and trust. In all our struggles, help them to know, help us to know that you are working and that you are loving us. In faith, we pray today for people who need your compassion, places that need your presence, situations that need your grace and mercy. We pray for Katie Peterson, for her healing and renewal as she goes through her back surgery this week. We pray for continued healing for Deanne and continued effectiveness of treatments for Mel. For Ted and Rosalie Solomon, for recovery from cancer. For Marilyn Marshall's mother Marge, healing and heart valve replacement surgery. And for Debbie, who's undergoing chemotherapy for her bone cancer. We pray for Julie Hesheimer's sister-in-law, Sherry, for this tumor that she has and that testing, treatments would be effective and bring her healing. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that right now you are among us. So transform these elements from something that's common into something that's full of Christ and bless this time of communion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.